All right, well, good morning, everyone. I think I pretty much know everyone here, but in case you don't know me, my name is Emily Cockerell. I am just a member here. Um, I don't have a role on staff with the church. I don't have a seminary degree. I am just a woman who loves the Lord, whose life has been transformed by him, who loves his word. And so I just want to encourage you all that you all could get up here and do this, and you should think about it. But um, today we are talking about walking with God in work. So for like a little, you know, story to just get us set up, from roughly ages 11 to 14, when any adult in my life asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I gave one very, very consistent answer, and it was a very serious one. I wanted to be a missionary to China and a U.S. senator. And I saw no problems with that equation at all. Um, but one day, an interaction with a woman in my church planted seeds of doubt and confusion about my aspirations that would actually plague me for years. She asked me what I wanted to do when I finished high school, and I confidently gave her my answer. And she replied, you know, most adults, they were sort of like, really? Okay. Um, but she replied with this edge of criticism in her voice, but if you do all that, how do you expect to have babies? And I was offended and proud, so I defended myself. But her most devastating words are actually yet to come. As I said that I thought God had gifted me in ways that could be useful on the mission field or in our nation's capital, and that I thought I could have a family too, she suggested that God would be more honored by my giftings if I did not use them for building up the church or society at large, but if instead I sacrificed them, laying them at his feet in disuse, choosing instead to stay at home with children. And until this point in my life, I had never really considered that working in accordance with the gifts God had given me and marriage and child rearing were mutually exclusive options. This was a new concept for me, and I struggled with it. So I think the question I want to put is, was that woman right? Was teenage Emily right? Or did both of us maybe misunderstand in some way what the word of God actually teaches about the work God calls his daughters to do in the world? Now, before we dive headfirst into our topic of walking with God and work as women, there are two things that I want to note. First, I do want to acknowledge the difficulty of thinking and talking about this topic of women and work both inside and outside of the church. This is a really unique problem that women face, because last I checked, no one's having arguments or discussions about whether men should work outside the home or what kinds of work they should be doing. And many of us, men and women alike, come into this conversation armed with principled stances formed through our own thought or the influence of others. But this is also a highly personal topic for each one of us as women. We've each had different examples set for us in our mothers, in the church, and in the world. We each have different personalities and desires, and we, all of us, have walked different paths. And when someone comes in and tries to make judgments about the path that we've chosen or how we spend our days, it doesn't feel good, and I know that from experience. So all this makes this conversation really, really hard. So because of how difficult that is, I want us to... I want to ask us to do something else that can be hard. I want us to lay aside our presuppositions and the clamor of our hearts just till 10.30, guys, just till 10.30, so that we can pay attention to what the Word of God actually says. Our assumptions and our feelings often act like cotton balls in our ears. They can soften and distort what we hear 
And so I want us to just take them out so that we can hear clearly what the word of God says. We are promised that the word of God will teach, reprove, and correct us to do what? Every good work. So let's lay aside our pride and our feelings, even just for a little while, so that the word and the spirit can do their work in our hearts and our minds today. And so with that, let's get started. Our main point for today is every Christian woman is called to exert herself faithfully and diligently, both in ordinary work and in gospel work. If you didn't get a handout, they're at the back there. And so that's the first little thing there. I'll repeat it. Every Christian woman is called to exert herself faithfully and diligently, both in ordinary work and in gospel work. But in order to talk about work, we have to define our terms first. What are we talking about when we talk about work? Is it only or primarily some kind of paid employment? We would all agree, I think, that I'm definitely working when I perform tasks related to my paid employment as communications manager for the Harvest Group, right? But what about when I'm cleaning my kitchen? Sure, we'd probably call that work. What about cooking a meal? Or going on a run? Or preparing this talk? What about the effort I put into my marriage? What about meeting with another woman to disciple her? Do all those things count as work? Paraphrasing theologian Paul Grimmond, I think that we might define work as everything we do in the world that God has created, besides rest. And we'll talk about that later. But we, so a definition of work that we're going to think through is everything that we do in the world that God's created. And at first, this may seem really broad, but as this theologian goes on, um, I think he's really persuasive. So he says, rather than speaking about our jobs, the New Testament speaks to us about the whole of our lives and calls on us to do every work as someone who is committed to the Lordship of Christ. This, of course, covers the whole of our working life, but the modern obsession with our jobs is not a biblical invention. What we do when we are paid, just as what we do when we aren't paid, is all to be for the glory of God. So rather than speaking about work in our modern sense of that term, what God keeps talking to us about in the scriptures are our good works, our whole lives lived as followers of Jesus. So when we're talking about work, we are talking about every effort we make in the world. We're talking about doing jobs, changing diapers or feeding teenagers, folding laundry, playing a piece of music, studying for a test, making a to-do list, tending a garden, exercising, reading a book, filling out answers to your Bible study questions. Most of what we do besides sleeping and other forms of rest, the Bible would consider works. So we're talking about something really broad today. But before we go on, we need to ask the question of where work even came from. Why is it something we should bother doing at all? And how should we think about doing it? Sometimes we're tempted to approach what the Bible has to say about work and many other things in a very flat way, assuming that everything the Bible says on a topic applies to us with equal weight. But as we know, the story of the Bible unfolds slowly across its pages with what happens later shedding light on what happened previously. This is something that's called progressive revelation. And when one theme is followed progressively across the plot line of the Bible, it's often called biblical theology. So what can we learn about work if we follow that theme through the story of the Bible in this way. 
And there are four headings on your handout, which we're going to work through. So it's creation, fall, redemption, and glorification. So we're going to start in the most obvious place, the very first plot point of the Bible, God's creation of the world and everything in it. So turn with me to Genesis 1 in your Bibles. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see God creating, or in other words, we see God working. That's right, God works. He hovers, speaks, forms, names, makes, plants a garden, commands, blesses, even performs the first surgery, all before he rests on the seventh day, which is in itself a good indicator that he's been at work. Now, this has many implications, but one of the more important things that it tells us is that work is good. It is not a result of the fall or a menial task that God gave only to his subservient creatures. God himself works which gives work enormous dignity and meaning. But in Genesis 1, we don't just see God working. We see that he makes people to work as well. So in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, we read out of the CSB, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. So in the first chapter of the Bible, we see that God makes male and female people in his image, and he gives them joint tasks. They will make more humans together, and they will all collectively rule over the whole creation with all its parts and its inhabitants. The fact that God made the first man and woman and made them in his image helps us understand the work he gives them to do together. They are to make image bearers of God because God makes image bearers. They are to reign because God reigns. And this set of commands all packaged together is often known as the creation or cultural mandate. This is something that we're going to be coming back to. So just when I say creation mandate, we're referring to these verses here and specifically what God says to the man and the woman in 128. And one thing I want to note here is that this mandate is jointly given to the man and the woman. Sometimes people will try to break this apart and they'll say, Being fruitful and multiplying is for women, and ruling and subduing is for men. But I want you to look at the text and see that the text does not say that. The words of scripture are extremely clear. The man and the woman are equally and jointly given this work. The work of bearing human fruit and filling the earth with God's God's image bearers was intended for the man and woman together, and likewise the work of reigning over the rest of creation was also intended for the man and woman to do together. And in fact, as we move into Genesis 2, we see that the very reason for the creation of woman alongside man is because neither can do this work alone. So go to Genesis 2 with me now. And even though we see that the task, they're given the task together and they can't do the work alone, this doesn't mean that their tasks are identical though. In Genesis 2, We zoom in and we see the same scene that we saw in Genesis 1, but now it's from up close. And so this time we see that the man is made first and he is given the task first. So in 2.15, it says, the Lord God took the man 
and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. This is kind of shorthand for the creation mandate that we heard in chapter one. But as the man starts to knock around the garden, trying to do this work by himself, God says for the first time so far that something in creation is not good. Verse 18, he says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. Again, that's out of the CSB. Now this word translated as helper corresponding or in other translations, helper suitable or helper fit. It's an interesting word because in Hebrew, it's just one word, azer, and it literally just means helper or one who helps. That corresponding or suitable or fit is a translation choice. And this word is used most often in the scriptures in the Psalms, and it's used of God himself. So in Psalm 33:20, we see that God is our help and our shield. In Psalm 46:1, God is our helper in times of trouble. So it's an interesting word. Just hold that in your mind. But turning back to the story, they start to look for a helper for Adam, and they're looking around, and none of the creatures that have been made so far seem to be qualified or capable or fit for Adam to be his helper. And so to solve this problem, God makes a whole new creature to be the man's helper, one that is both like and unlike man. He makes a woman in 221. And as the woman is like and unlike the man in appearance, she is also like and unlike the man in her responsibility. She is equal to the man and given the same task as him, back to 128, but her role is different. As the firstborn, which is a much bigger biblical theme that we don't have time to get into, the man has a kind of authority and responsibility the woman doesn't have. And as the helper made for the man, the woman's primary role is to solve the man's aloneness and to make up what was lacking in him for them to do their task. Alone, the man could not multiply, fill the earth, or subdue it. And with her, he can do all of those things. So this is a relationship of harmony and productivity where the man and the woman each understand and joyfully accept not just their relationship, but also their roles within it. And they beautifully accomplish the work God's given them to do together. And while the man and the woman become the first husband and wife, the necessity of them for each other is not just a statement about marriage, but about human community and society as a whole. Men and women need each other by God's design, back to 128 again, and the whole world as God has made it comes unhinged if men and women cease to work together as he's designed, which brings us to a truly terrible plot twist in Genesis 3. Now, we don't have time to read the whole story, but in Genesis 3, if you'll turn there, we see the upending of God's design and intention as the man and woman fail in the task God has given them. Where the man and woman are to rule over creation, instead, the woman listens to a creature and rebels against God in pride. Where the man is to lead the woman, instead, he forfeits his responsibility and follows her lead, rebelling against God in unbelief. And what God called good, even very good, is now corrupted and twisted. If you look with me in verses 16 through 19, God explains to the man and the woman what the results of their sin are. And as we read these verses, I want you to pay special attention to the effects of the fall into sin on their work. So starting in verse 16, he said, he being God, said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. 
And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. So, call out some ways that we see work affected by sin in these verses. Don't be shy. Pain and childbirth, most obvious one. So being fruitful and multiplying, part of that creation mandate is now going to bring women pain. What else? Yes, so labor is now painful and difficult. Where it wasn't before, their labor was sweet and beautiful. So that's a drastic change. Anything else? What? Now there's weeds. Yes, the ground that's supposed to yield plants for them to eat is now cursed. And as they try to work it, it's going to work against them, right? And the last one is that they're now literally going to work themselves into the ground. They're going to work until they die, which is new, right? So in short, pain and difficulty have now been introduced into the equation of people and their work. But it's actually not only their work that's been affected. Look at verse 16 again. God says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now there are a few different ways to interpret this verse and we're not gonna get into those. But I think at minimum, what we can take away is that the relationship between the man and the woman is now corrupted as well. Where before they were a fully unified team rejoicing in one another as they fulfilled their work together, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, now, because of their failure to obey God, there will be conflict and competition between them. Again, we see this play out in marriage in some obvious ways, but we can also see it play out on the larger stage of human history. Rather than honoring and seeing women as their helpers, men seek to dominate and subjugate women. And rather than respecting and helping men in work, women either roll over under the domination of men or they seek to rival them in their roles. In a post-Genesis 3 world, men and women still need each other, but fulfilling the creation mandate just got a lot harder. And in fact, I think we're supposed to leave this chapter wondering, how is this even supposed to work now? How are we supposed to get anything done? But the word starts to answer the question before it even arises in our minds, because if you go back to verse 15 of chapter 3, God has already made an incredible promise before he even told them the consequences. He has already told them that the seed of the woman is going to come and that he is going to turn what these creatures upended right side up again, that he's going to crush the head of the serpent and with it the curses and consequences that have fallen on creation. And this is really great news, but he's still a long way off in our story and sadly, things actually manage to get worse before they get better. So over the next few chapters of Genesis, we're not going to read, but I'll give you some references. We see the first murder happen between brothers over the very question of the value of their work before God in Genesis 4, 1 through 16. We see that technology increases through the work of men's hands in chapter 4, verses 20 to 22. We see that this new technology cannot change what's evil in their hearts, verse, uh, verses 23 to 24. And eventually... 
in 6.5 and 7.12 through 13, we see that the whole aim of men's hearts and the work of their hands becomes corrupted, wicked, and violent. To the point that God is grieved and he regrets that he ever made humans at all. And he determines that he has no recourse but to literally wipe humanity off the face of the planet. That's, that's what the Hebrew means, truly, to wipe them off the face of the planet. But in his mercy, he decides to give humanity and creation a fresh start at the same time through the family of a righteous man named Noah. Now, God tells Noah to build a really big boat in a landlocked place where it's never rained and invite a bunch of animals in. And you all know the, most of the rest of that story. But what happens when Noah and his family walk off the ark almost a year later? So now I'll go to Genesis 9. In Genesis 8 and 9, God promises to never again send a flood to wipe out the earth and its inhabitants, and he makes a covenant with Noah and his offspring. And right in the middle of all this, in chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, God repeats the creation mandate, or does he? So read with me these verses. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is a little familiar. The fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth, every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. They are placed under your authority. Every creature that lives and moves will be food for you as I gave the green plants. I have given you everything. First one is really familiar, right? But is there something different about this repetition of the creation mandate? I see some nods. What do we think it is? Is there something missing? There's no harmony in nature. And there's one more thing. There's no command to subdue and rule. It's gone. And listen to this assessment from these uh, rather, listen to the, an assessment of these verses from Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert in their book, The Mission of the Church. They say, we can see the vestiges of the original mandate here in Genesis 9, multiplication, domination, work, but things are clearly not the same. Perhaps most significantly, the words, and subdue it, are conspicuously absent from the whole thing. The goal of the original mandate is no longer attainable. Unlike the Adamic mandate, or the mandate given to Adam, this Noahic version, or the version given to Noah, is not a matter of progression to paradise, but rather of preservation in a fallen world. The overwhelming power of sin and evil has made the work of subduing the world impossible, even for the people chosen by God. That's what we see in Noah. We don't even make it out of Genesis 9 before we see this evidenced in Noah's own life, in his own sin. And so I think we're left with the question, is that just the end of the creation mandate and the work God gave humanity forever? Are we and our work doomed to irrevocable futility and failure because of sin? Let's turn to Luke 3 and find out. So we're going to read some of Luke 3. I'm going to jump around a little bit because we don't have time to read all those names. But I'm going to read verse 23 and then 34 and then 36 through 38. So as he began his ministry, Jesus was about 30 years old and was thought to be son of Joseph, son of Haley, verse 34, son of Jacob, 
son of Isaac, son of Abraham, son of Terah, son of Nahor, verse 36, son of Canaan, son of Arphaxed, son of Shem, son of Noah, son of Lamech, son of Methuselah, son of Enoch, son of Jared, son of Mahalalel, son of Canaan, son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. Luke is making a really clear point that Jesus Christ is the long-awaited seed of the woman, the second and true Adam, who can and will redeem humanity from their wretched and hopeless state. Luke is saying he's finally here, y'all. And what exactly did this Jesus come to do? He came to work. And I know that may seem a little anticlimactic, but it's true. We see that he began his earthly career, if you will, as an ordinary laborer. But as Luke 3 states, as we already read, around 30 he changed direction and he started focusing on a different kind of work. John talks a lot about this in his gospel. So John 5:17, my father is still working and I am working also. John 10:25, the works that I do in my father's name testify about me. And then in John 17:4, as he's speaking to there are lots more of these. These are just three of many. But in John 17:4, as he's praying to the father in the high priestly prayer, Jesus says, "I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Jesus worked during his life, both in ordinary work and in the work of earthly ministry. But he came to do one very specific work. In Philippians 2, if you want to jump over there, Paul describes Jesus as assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even to death on a cross. Does the phrase in verse 7, the likeness of humanity, remind you of anything? Does it remind you of Genesis 1, 26 a little bit? Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So the God who made us in his image descends humbling himself to take on our image and likeness. But why? Jesus became obedient to his father by assuming the form of a servant, we read, or put another way, one who works in submission to another to accomplish what? Death. Excruciating, painful, substitutionary death for us. And why would he do that? If we have any doubt, the New Testament authors, and particularly Paul, go to great pains to make it clear that Jesus came as the true and better Adam. Where Adam was made in God's likeness, Jesus, the Son of God, was born in the likeness of humanity. Where Adam exalted himself in pride, Jesus humbled himself in obedience. Where Adam failed and brought death through sin, Romans 5.12, Jesus submitted himself to the pain and death that Adam wrought, becoming sin for us. And in doing so, he broke the chains of death and evil and failure that had gripped the world from Adam on. Though like Adam, he suffered death, God did not let his Holy One see corruption. And Jesus did not return to dust as Adam and his children had. God breathed back into his nostrils the breath of life and he got back up. 
The seed of the woman crushed the head of the serpent, and the way back into Eden was opened again. And because of this, Jesus ascended back into the heavens and sat down at the right hand of God, as we read in Hebrews. But back to Philippians, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God accepted the finished work of Christ fully and finally, and I want us to notice that in Philippians 2, now all things in heaven and on earth and wherever under the earth is, all these things are now in submission to Christ. So going back to DeYoung and Gilbert that I've already quoted, they argue that the mandate given to Adam to rule the earth is fulfilled ultimately, not by us, but by the last Adam, Jesus. Where Adam failed as king, Jesus succeeds. Where Adam failed to protect the garden and condemn the serpent, Jesus does so. And all this means, this is really important, all this means that we are not little Adams striving to accomplish Adam's original work. No, that work has been picked up and completed by our Lord Jesus. So Jesus, not humans, accomplished the creation mandate. But what does that mean? Does that mean that this work that God gave humans at the beginning of time has nothing more for us to do? I don't think so. So go with me now to Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And can I get someone actually to read that when they get there? Whoever gets there first. Or I'll call on someone. I'm not afraid to do that kind of thing. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Thanks, Sarah. Now, it may not be obvious on the surface, but the Great Commission that Sarah just read has a lot of parallels to the creation mandate. What are some things that you might see? <clears throat> what are some similarities? we have being fruitful and multiplying, okay? It's a little different now. Any other common themes or parallels? We have the concept of authority and rule, right? And we also have sending people out into the world. So God tells them in the creation mandate, go, be multiplied and go and subdue. And the work in the world that they're being commanded to do is connected to the rule of God. So, what we're to take away from this is that because the whole creation has been subdued by Christ, the original creation mandate, which he's fulfilled, is now recast spiritually in the Great Commission. Now, 
Just as before, as Brianna said, we're commanded to be fruitful and multiply. However, rather than the primary emphasis being on the work of physical reproduction, now the command is spiritual reproduction. And rather than reigning the world on God's behalf by subduing the world, we work as God's sub-regents and co-heirs with Christ by making every effort to bring the world into submission to Christ, who's already conquered all. In other words, we now fulfill the creation mandate by discipling others in the church and sharing the gospel. But we're going to come back to that later, but we actually still aren't at the end of the story. Sometimes we, when we're telling the story, we end here, right, with Jesus. <clears throat> but Jesus is coming back, amen? And with his return, he will bring judgment, a fiery destruction of the world as we know it, and he will usher in what the Bible calls the new heavens and the new earth. And this may be new for some of you, but when Christ returns, he's not actually taking us away somewhere else. He's bringing our new home with him down here. And if you have questions about that, I would send you to Revelation 21 through 22. But we're going to go and read from Isaiah chapter 65, verses 21 to 23. The prophet Isaiah writes there in Isaiah 65, speaking of the new creation, people will build houses and live in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and others live in them. They will not plant and others eat, for my people's lives will be like the lifetime of a tree. My chosen ones will fully enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor without success or bear children destined for disaster, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord along with their descendants." So according to what this passage that we just read says, are we going to work in the new creation? Yeah, I think so. So surprise, your work isn't done when you retire or even when you're dead. Um, but we see that work is good and that work is actually a way that we will reflect the goodness and nature of our God for eternity. And there's more that I could say about that. And you have questions don't ask the panelists in the Q&A. Some of them are nervous enough already. Come find me, and we can talk about it then. Or I can give you some resources to think it through. But now we have traced the biblical theme of work all the way through Scripture, from creation to glory. And I'm sure that many of you were not expecting biblical theology when you came to a talk on women and work. But I hope you can see the relevance and the importance of the work we just did and now that we have this foundation of how work fits into the story of God and his people for all of time, we can safely wade into the waters of the specific works God calls women to do in the world. And we're going to start in a place that some of you might consider unlikely or even unpopular. We're going to go to Proverbs 31. Now, the Proverbs 31 woman can get a bit of a bad rap. I've heard her used as a case for feminism from scripture and as a proof text for why every Christian woman should learn embroidery. I'm not so sure about that one, but I think that, rightly understood, she can offer us a surprising amount of clarity on some of our biggest questions about what the Bible has to say about women and our ordinary work. And for this portion of the talk, I'm indebted to, the, to chapter 9 of that book that Haley gave away, God's Good Design by Claire Smith. I joked with him that I wasn't even going to teach, I was just going to read the whole chapter, so you're spared that, but... Um, I know that Jennifer already read the passage for us so wonderfully earlier, but I want us to read it again rather quickly. And this time, I want you to focus on references to the woman's work. 
And so I'm reading out of the CSB again, so it'll sound a little different from what Jennifer read earlier. Who can find a wife of noble character? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will not lack anything good. She rewards him with good, not evil, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the merchant ships bringing her food from far away. She rises while it is still night and provides food for her household and portions for her female servants. She evaluates a field and buys it. She plants a vineyard with her earnings. She draws on strength and reveals that her arms are strong. She sees that her profits are good and her lamp never goes out at night. She extends her hands to the spinning staff and her hands hold the spindle. Her hands reach out to the poor and she extends her hands to the needy. She is not afraid for her household when it snows, for all in her household are doubly clothed. She makes her own bed coverings. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known at the city gates where he sits among the elders of the land. She makes and sells linen garments. She delivers belts to the merchants. Strength and honor are her clothing and she can laugh at the time to come. Her mouth speaks wisdom, and loving instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the activities of her household and is never idle. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also praises her. Many women have done noble deeds, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord will be praised. Give her the reward of her labor and let her works praise her at the city gates. So... Shout out some things that you see about her work with the verse reference, if you can. Rapid fire. Let's go. She, she is a real estate agent in verse 16, and one would assume has some measure of financial independence. What else? She works willingly in verse Yeah. Yes, she works willingly. Yes, she's generous with her profits and helps the needy, verse 20. She is not idle, yes, in verse 27. Some other things we see in verse 14 that she would shop at Aldi because she likes imported groceries, and she's thrifty. She, uh, verse 15, she rises early to prepare food for all those in her household. Verse 18, but she also stays up late working. For also in verse 18, she knows how to turn a profit. Verse 21, she makes sure that everyone in her home is sufficiently clothed. Verse 22, she works hard to make her home a welcoming place, not just for guests, but for her husband. And fun fact about this, verse 22 is actually about making sure that she and her husband have a healthy sex life. And you can come back for that in the fall, not taught by me. (laughs) Um, In verses 13, 19, and 24, we see that she would really do well on Etsy. She is very crafty. Um, Verse 27, she oversees her whole household well. And verses 28, 29, and 31, her work is admirable and worthy of reward. Now, before we go any farther, I want to give us some basic literary context about the Proverbs. So the literary genre of proverb is a form that can be a little bit jarring for us. They speak about the world largely in terms of black and white, either or, good and bad, up or down. And so there's very little room for gray. And we love gray. We love nuance, right? And so sometimes this means the Proverbs feel a bit harsh or simplistic, But these are the true and inerrant words of God, no matter how difficult they are for us to grasp. And that binary pattern is important for us to keep in mind as we come to Proverbs 31, because it helps us see that what we're being given is a bit of idealism, not exactly realism. 
right? We're given all of the good and none of the bad. We don't see any of the times where she fails, which we know that she does because she's a sinner. And there are just lots of things that are left out that we don't hear about her. So we're being given a particular portrait of her. But another thing that I think is important for us to note is that in verse 1, we see that this passage, this portrait, comes to us from a woman, okay? In verse 1, we see that this whole chapter is a pronouncement from King Lemuel, a man, but it's given to him by his mother. And so some would paint the Proverbs 31 woman as this patriarchal, unrealistic woman, and they just want to kind of toss it out as unrealistic and unkind to women. But I think we would do well to treat her as a godly goal to aim for rather than something meant to shame us, okay? So let's go back to the text and think about this. So we see that she works hard and she gets stuff done, but if we step back and look at the big picture, there are a number of things that we can draw that this woman tells us about the work of a godly woman, and these are ripped, at least the basic points are ripped almost verbatim from Claire Smith. So um, the first one that I think we should note is that she lives out for us the biblical principle that it is good for wives and mothers to work at home and focus on caring well for their families. And I think this one's important because when questions are raised about whether or not Christian women, Christian mothers in particular, should work, I often hear the burden of proof put on the women who want to work. I have rarely heard someone, in particular a woman, prove from Scripture that it's good for women to work at home. It's usually just assumed that, well, it must be there because we always hear it's there, right? And so I assume that, like me, many of you think that it's good for a mother to work in her home for her family. But I would challenge you on this. Could you make a persuasive argument for that from the scriptures on your own two feet? I'll give you a hint. Proverbs 31 is a really good place to start, as is Titus 2, 3 through 5, which we'll circle back to later. So that's the first thing. It's good for wives and mothers to work at home. But second, she also will not allow us to say that women, and specifically mothers, should not work outside the home. Because we see her working both out of her home and outside her home. She seems to have several forms of employment that she does with excellence, and she's praised for it. We are given no indication that it's a bad thing that she's doing all of this work. And so number three, in that same vein, the Proverbs 31 woman also won't let us say that a woman should never run her own business, manage others, or have employees. She manages several forms of business and employs and manages household servants. But number four, her work only benefits her family, and it never harms them. So quoting Smith directly now, there is no sense that her family is missing out because she's not there when they need her or that she's too tired for them at the end of the day, or that her house is a mess, the fridge is empty, and all the clothes are unwashed. Whatever she's doing to earn an income, it fits in around her family responsibilities. And so she's still caring well for her family, even in her employment. But number five, and this is a big one, we have to acknowledge that this woman is married and wealthy. Her family does not have financial need. She is not a single mom. Her husband is employed and supportive of her endeavors. And so we cannot copy and paste her onto every woman's situation, irrespective of how their situations differ from hers. She is a model for us and not a mandate. And finally, because she's wealthy, 
we should take special note of how she uses her income and her wealth. So reading directly from Smith again, she meets the needs of her family, but she does not go over the top. They are comfortable, well-dressed, and well-fed, but you do not get the sense that they have the newest top-of-the-line version of everything. And she is generous. She gives to the poor what she does not need for her family or her business. She does not put possessions before people. Her hard work is driven by her love for God and for those he has given her. And so the goal of her labor is not a brick house, two cars, skiing trips, and a life of luxury. Her goal is to make the most of everything God has given her and to use all of it to fulfill the demands of all her relationships with God, her husband, children, servants, the poor, which is, of course, what we all should be doing, whether we're married or not. Now, in case this issue of working outside the home is something you and your husband are thinking through with your family, I want to read one final section from Claire Smith before we move on. She offers two questions to guide women as they face this question. And I actually think these are edifying questions for all of us, whether, you know, I, these are good questions for me and we don't have children yet. So the first question that she offers is, does my work help or hinder me in meeting the needs of the people God has given me to love, such as a spouse, children, parents, friends, Christian brothers and sisters? and not just their physical needs, but their spiritual and relational needs. Can I give them the time and love they need in the midst of my work? And the second question, second guiding question she gives is, do I really need the money? This one hurts a little bit. This one's hard for us in our modern world. So she asks, are we living beyond what we really need? Are we putting money in the nice things money can buy before God and people? Now, you and your husband might conclude that the best choice is for you to go to work, or you might decide it's best for you to stay home full-time, or that you should go to work part-time, or you should adjust your ambitions or change your job, or maybe you just need to cut out other things that allow you to reprioritize your time in a way that allows you to steward your relationships well for God's glory. The fact is, there is not one biblical answer as to whether or not mothers should work outside the home. There's just not. This is an area for prayer, wisdom, and discernment for each of you and for your families. And I would also strongly encourage you, if you're a member of UBC in particular, to bring an elder or two into that conversation because they are God's gifts to us, and I know that they would love to help you and your husband think through that biblically and well. So that's a a big portion of how the Bible teaches us how to think about women in our ordinary work. But what else does the Bible say about our work? And it has to say a great deal. And and one important thing before we go through these things, so you'll find, we don't have time to read the scriptures, but several of the more important ones are on the third page of your handout. And so one thing as we go through these themes that's important to know is that the Bible is largely unconcerned with what we do for our jobs and our work and entirely concerned with how we do it with our character. And so, some of the things that I'll call out from those passages and some others are, we are to work diligently with constant attentive effort. This means, uh, this is the opposite of laziness or idleness. We are to work sincerely and wholeheartedly. So half-hearted work is not pleasing to God. We're to work with integrity, always telling the truth and behaving honestly. We're not to work to please men, but to please God. In our work, we're to exercise all other New Testament commands in our relationships. So we're to treat the people we encounter with love, kindness, compassion, purity, self-control, patience, selflessness. We're not to work 
to earn our place before God, but rather we trust in the work that Christ has already done for us. We don't work for earthly reward, but for heavenly reward. We're not to overwork, but we're to work hard and then rest fully in God. So pausing here for a moment, we do not have the space to fully explore the concept of rest in the scriptures. But in short, we image God both in work and in rest. Resting from our work is part of our worship as Christians because it reminds us that we are not gods. We cannot work endlessly. We can't ever actually even finish our tasks. So the biblical mandate to rest forces us to trust in our Father who provides completely, even for his creatures who don't work at all, like the plants. And it forces us to enjoy him and the gifts that he's given us. And we can rest body and soul from our labors because Christ has earned our acceptance for us, as we read in Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 29. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And finally, we do not work to fulfill our potential. Rather, we work for God's glory. Now, many of us, including me, have had the idea that our work should fulfill us or fulfill our potential. And so we find ourselves rest, restless and frustrated when we are doing work that's unsatisfying. So maybe we're stuck in boring work, work we're not passionate about, work that we feel is beneath us, or work that doesn't provide sufficiently for our needs. And on the other hand, we can find ourselves disillusioned when work we thought would be satisfying proves fruitless. Maybe you thought you'd be satisfied with work that you're passionate about, work that you trained for, or work that you romanticized, like domesticity or motherhood, or ministry or cause-based work. Somewhere, many of us miss the memo that work between Genesis 3 and Revelation 21 is always going to be painful and fruitless. Every human longs for meaning, satisfaction, and fulfillment. And we, always, we look for this in all kinds of ways, but it usually comes out in a little more of blank and my life will be complete. Or if blank changed, my life would matter. And this restlessness actually points to the fact that we are made in the image of God and we know deep down that we have a higher purpose than the futility that we face in our work. But the reality is Christ is the only answer to our longing for meaning and fulfillment. Nothing else, especially not work, is going to scratch that itch. Searching for meaning in our work will always prove fruitless until we rest in Christ's work for us and learn to work for God's glory and not our own satisfaction. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, or maybe you would consider yourself a Christian, but you actually have no idea what it means to find genuine satisfaction in Christ, that may sound a little bit hopeless. It may sound like I'm saying there's no hope for any of your work outside of Christ. And in fact, that is exactly what I'm saying. And I am saying that there's no hope for you outside of Christ. If you have never faced the stark reality that on your own, you can spend the rest of your life trying to be good and you will fail. You absolutely cannot achieve anything meaningful on your own. If you have never looked up and seen the hand of God reach down to you in Christ, the Son of God who humbled himself to take on that human form, who lived a totally sinless life in the pain and dust and misery of humanity, and who died the most humiliating and excruciating death humans had ever devised, all so that he could substitute himself for you before God, paying the impossible sin debt you've accrued in your wretched little life, 
and then who rose from the dead because he conquered your sin and death forever. If you've never bowed the knee in love and servitude to this Savior, then no, I am afraid there is no hope for you or your work in this life or the next. And I beg of you to repent of your sins and believe in him because if you have laid down your, every part of your life before the throne of Christ, then you know that he offers hope and changes everything, not just about your eternal state, but about your daily life and work here in this fallen world as we all await his return. And by the power of the Spirit, you know that you're then freed to work not for yourself, but for God's glory. And so how do we work for God's glory? We do it in all the ways that I just listed and that we've already talked about, but we also do it in working to spread the gospel, which is our final section. I'll try to be quick here because we're a little over. So in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, we read, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now, as we've already established, gospel work is how we fulfill the creation mandate under Christ. And we're all to accomplish this, men and women alike, through evangelism and discipleship. We can and we must do these things no matter how else we spend our days, no matter what we're doing for work, in or out of the home. And there are two ditches that we can be tempted to fall into when it comes to the relationship between our ordinary work and our gospel work. So the first ditch is the idea that having a job doing Christian ministry is better or more honorable for a Christian than doing ordinary work. And the second ditch is that every kind of work is gospel work because it's all contributing to the advancement of Christ's kingdom. These are the, that second ditch um, is where we can often hear the phrase, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary use words, which is not accurate actually. So what's the problem with ditch one, this idea of having a Christian job is better? So while the Bible does indeed encourage us to give greater honor to the elders who shepherd us in the church, we see that in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 1 Timothy 5, it also clearly states that only qualified men may serve as elders, and one of the qualifications is that they want to do that work. And so we might argue that those verses don't apply to any qualified men who don't want to be an elder, any unqualified men, and all women. So the Bible does not seem to give us sort of blanket honor to anyone working in any kind of Christian ministry. But also, if we turn to Ephesians 4.11, Paul writes, and he gave the apostles, prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. According to these verses, whose job is it to actually do the work of ministry? The saints. It's us. It's all us. All y'all. Now, I am really, uh, or rather, before I go on there, so the job of those that he lists, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, so those that we would say are in Christian ministry, their job is simply to equip us to go out into the world to do the gospel work. It's our job to do it. And so, I'm not good with sports analogies, but do we honor a good coach more than the players that he coaches? I don't think so. We understand that they're doing different and equally vital work to play their game and win. 
And in the same way, our church leaders aren't doing more honorable work than those of us working in our homes and our workplaces. They're doing different work that is just as essential to the gospel as our own gospel work is. But then, what's the problem with Ditch 2, this idea that all work is gospel work? So nowhere does the Bible equate these two. Jesus worked as a carpenter, but we don't read anywhere that he thought his carpentry was fulfilling his earthly ministry as his teachings did. Making a finely crafted chair certainly honors God, but a fine chair cannot call sinners to repent and believe. In order to do gospel work, we have to actually speak the words of the gospel. If we have a hand at all in advancing the kingdom of God, it's not accomplished primarily in our ordinary work, but in our gospel work, discipleship, and evangelism. And so with that, women are specifically called to do gospel work in evangelism, discipling, and teaching other women and children, and then third, in serving in the church. So evangelism, every Christian woman is called to share the gospel with the lost, whether she spends her days at home with little ones, or studying in a classroom, or running a company. No matter what you do, you have the spiritually dying around you all the time, if you were looking for them. They could be your coworkers, bosses, or employees, your classmates, or your students, your friends, your neighbors, and even and especially your own children or your grandchildren. The most essential work that you can do as you're going about your ordinary work is sharing the gospel of Christ. Now, discipleship, every Christian woman is called to help other women and children who are Christians grow in the knowledge of the word of God and in living holy lives. We see this command given to all Christians in a variety of places in Paul's letters, and we see it given specifically to women in Titus 2, 3 through 5. Did you know you are actually commanded to teach the Bible to others and help them grow, regardless of your position or situation when it comes to your work, or even if you feel qualified to do it, you're told you must do it. And finally, serving in the church, every Christian woman is called to build up the church through service. We lend our efforts to the Sunday morning gathering by attending, singing, greeting one another in the name of the Lord, reading in the service when called upon, watching children in the nursery, doing whatever needs to be done. And this is actually an area sometimes where we can use our particular gifts like teaching or administration or graphic design or whatever it is as we have opportunity Now, it's essential for women of all ages, circumstances, and seasons to give attention to gospel work because the work of proclaiming the gospel is more important than every other kind of work. Now, that may sound like it kind of diminishes the significance of our ordinary work, but I don't think it does. I really like the way Bible teacher Peter Orr puts it, quote, all work is significant. The work itself pleases God, but stocking shelves is not the same as preaching the gospel. So all the work that God's given you has two aspects, what you're actually doing and the work of the Lord. We can't confuse the two, and we have to do both. And it requires balance, because if my ordinary work is suffering, if my work in communications is suffering because I'm, I'm neglecting it so I can lead a Bible study in my workplace, God's not pleased with that, because I'm not doing my ordinary work well. But if I'm not sharing the gospel or discipling others because I'm so focused on doing my earthly work well, God is also not pleased. I have to do both. So those of us who don't work for the church or serve in an official capacity are not excused from gospel ministry. And to restate our main point, every Christian woman is called to exert herself faithfully and diligently, both in ordinary work and in gospel work. And we might even say that gospel is a main part of why our ordinary work is important, because our pastors and church staff can't reach the lost at Harvest Group like I can. 
Our staff can't disciple your sons and your daughters and your neighbors and your friends like you can. So as we go about our daily work, no matter what we're doing, it's imperative that we seek opportunities to share the gospel and disciple others. And as we conclude, I go back to my opening question. Between the woman in my church who thought I should forfeit my gifts and interest for work to stay at home with children and my younger self who thought I could do it all just because I wanted to, who was right? I don't think either of us truly understood what God says or desires for his daughters and his work. I think she misunderstood what God commands women to do in the church and in the world. And I know that I mistakenly thought my work was the primary way that I could make a lasting difference in the world. And in the end, what's most important is not how we as women can use our individual gifts in order to work out our potential or our dreams or to make ourselves great, ourselves great or to accrue wealth. It's how we work out that great gift we've received in Christ of salvation from sin and death and of union with God and how in our ordinary work, we work to see others know and love him too. Because that's the only work we can do that's really going to last. All right, pray with me. Father, we thank you that you've spoken and that you've revealed yourself and all of your grandeur to us, these lowly, wretched humans, and that you have sent Christ to redeem us from our sin and our failure and our futility. We pray that you will help us to be steadfast and immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because we know that in you our work is not in vain. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so we don't have the most time left, but we do have some women from our church who are going to answer some questions, um, some of which we got from you and some of which we thought would just be helpful. Um, and so first, I'd like, oh, and as a note, we, uh, we're trying to pull from just a variety of seasons of life, and we had hoped and planned to have Meredith Cooper, who is a woman who works in her home as a stay-at-home mom. She's planning to attend, but she actually can't because she's working in her home, caring for her dad who had surgery yesterday and had to have another procedure uh, today. So she couldn't be with us, but that was not an intentional oversight. Um, and do pray for Meredith and for her dad. But... Um, these lovely women we have here, I'd love to start for each of you to introduce yourselves and to tell us what the work that God has given you looks like. What, how do you spend your days? Let's see. There we go. I think, Jennifer, is she good? Okay. Yes. Now, I'm Elizabeth Heifel. Um, uh, as you can tell by the gray hair, <laughs> my stage of life is uh, retirement, uh, although a wife never really retires. <laughs> my job doesn't end. Uh, it's a little different now, but my husband has been retired for about 10 years, and our children are gone, grown. Uh, we have four children. Three of, we're blessed to have three of them live in the area, and we have a lot of interaction with them. Um, I'm happy to say that our children are our good friends, and we enjoy spending time with one another. And um, right now, uh, you know, we're caring for grandchildren when we can, and that's an opportunity to minister to them, teach them. Um, I don't know how much in that's depth I need to go. That yeah. that covers it. Yeah, okay, it that's where I am. <laughs> Hi, I'm Annie, and uh, my husband Sam and I have three girls. They are five, six, and eight, and I stay home with them most of the time, but I do also work 
part-time um, from home as an attorney um, with the Mitchell Williams Law Firm in Rogers and um, a couple days a week I do that from home. I have been doing that um, since 2018. I was with Mitchell Williams before we had kids and were married. Um, took a six-year break after I had my girls. Came back in 2018 and um, asked them if I could do some work um, part-time from home and so I've been working from home before it was a thing. Um, <laughs> so I, um, it's great. I am home with my girls most of the time, but we have a sitter that comes a couple of days a week. She's there three hours a day. And it's been um, just sweet to even have a relationship there where it's a discipling one, one that was completely unexpected. Because I work from home, I don't have lots of coworkers that I just run into and see and can talk to. The sitter was great. She was with us for two years, and we spend time talking through um, anything that she's been going through in college. And she has since graduated, and we're without her now. But we still have that sweet relationship. We communicate regularly. Our girls love her. I love her, and we're going to go see her tomorrow. So. <laughs> um, I'm Taylor. Oof. Close to me. Um, I currently work as a um, school-based therapist, so I spend my days counseling elementary school kids and, um, and in school myself. So I spend my day at school, and then I go home and do it for myself afterwards. Awesome. So Annie kind of already started to answer this question a little bit, but what does gospel work look like for you in your situation or season? So maybe we can start with Taylor this time and work back. Yeah. Um, for me, I, I honestly get the uh, such a great opportunity of having a kid in my room, just me and the kid, for an hour. And so a lot of my gospel work looks like sharing the gospel with them and, and continuing the conversations each week with them. Um, I also get to work closely with two other therapists who are non-believers. And so um, I've gotten to have... A lot of conversations with them just based on the different way in which I work um, from the way that they would would see counseling ministry to be and so a lot of a lot of my ministry happens right there at work and then I have three roommates so I go home and spend time with those girls and um, we we try to push each other towards the Lord um, in those relationships as well. Um, my number one ministry is my girls. Um, it's of utmost importance. Everything follows after that. It makes me tear up. Um, it's a high calling, and um, I love it. Um, but also at the same time, for work, again, working from home without the normal working conditions, I, I have to be a little bit more creative in how um, any gospel conversation I have comes about. And for instance, um, my mentor at work is a gentleman and his wife whom I love. They are great Christians, and they've asked Sam and I to meet with their daughter and son and new baby as they move to the area. So that came unexpected, um, out of the box. It's not a normal, hey, see ya, in the lunchroom type of relationship, but the Lord's been kind of provided, and I'm thankful. Um, well... We have the opportunity to uh, minister to our grandchildren. Uh, they stay with us uh, most of the time on Fridays. Well, when, when the older ones, the school ones, are uh, out of school, we have six in the area, and we get to 
you know, have a time to do that. Um, Bobby, my husband, and I volunteer at Second Mile, and our that's some place that uh, God led us. It wasn't where I would have gone initially. For many years, we taught first and second graders in Sunday school, and I love to teach, and that was my ministry. Will you explain what Second Mile is for those who might not okay, know? Okay, Second Mile Ministry is a ministry of our church to needy people is what it is, and we can help them uh, you know, with food monetarily, and it's you have a captive audience coming <laughs> to you, and I must say most of the people that come profess to be Christians, uh, but it's an and but some aren't, and we have an opportunity to to present the gospel to people I would never cross paths with. So it's uh, a great ministry. God blesses us, and um, that that's a place also. I would say that's what uh, you know. Other than family, primarily is uh, and God has blessed us. Our children are all Christians. All four of our children are godly children, and He has. As I said, they're our friends, and we've learned much. God has taught us much through them also. So, and I, I trust uh, we, we have taught them about him also. I'm sure you have. So then we'll start with you again, Elizabeth. Are there any particular lies or misconceptions that you think women in your seasons or situations of work, whatever that is, are tempted to believe? Well, I hear that when you retire, you know, you uh, older people think, well, my work is done. But, of course, as long as you're, you have breath, you can uh, serve the Lord. Uh, a, a verse, and I don't have the reference that came to mind when you were speaking, was to do everything as unto the Lord. And there are times when there's things that you want, don't, don't want to do, you know, for whoever, for whatever reason. Um, but I always think, you know, if, if this were Jesus, would I be happy to do that for him? And uh, of course you would. So focus on him. Like I, you know, many times tell our clients, you focus on, not on yourself or your circumstances, but focus on God. Um. For me, in my profession, um, I feel like it's a very common idea that men or men or women in my profession, they are striving for partnership. They want to be the best. They want to they want to seat at the table. Um, they want to be making the best money they can. And for me, um, it's it's made me a little odd because I haven't desired that. I. Um, I'm not a New Year associate, but I'm not a partner. I'm kind of in the middle, and I'm okay there. And I'm okay not climbing the ladder to the top, and um, that's only through a lot of prayer and a lot of knowing that um, this is where the Lord's placed me. That's the desire of my heart, and I'm confident in that. And so um, there are times when it comes out in conversations at work, people don't quite understand why I would rather go to soccer practice or gymnastics or piano or do that. Um, but honestly, I'm okay with looking a little odd. I, I'm okay with it because um, God's been good and he's given me a family to care for and I want to do that well. So uh, if there are lies out there for sure, I would say, but um, you put your confidence in the Lord and stand out and be odd sometimes. 
Um, yeah, I was trying to think about this one. Probably for me, it, it's just me. And so I kind of have a lot of leeway to do what I can and what I will with my time. Um, and so I think there it's kind of easy, and I might be kind of getting into the next one, but falling into the trap of either doing too much or doing too little. Um, and, and following the Lord in um, just because... I don't have a family um, of my own doesn't mean that I don't have a lot of responsibility with um, my family. I have, there's six of us kids and there's lots of opportunities for me to um, love my brothers and sisters well. And then I get the opportunity to work with the kids that I see every day. And so I think finding a lot of purpose um, with the time that I have um, and not just allowing it to pass me by till I have a family of my own. Yeah, that's great. So we can stay with you. Yeah, the last question that we got um, ahead of the session from a member of UBC was, how can we fight the temptation to be lazy or apathetic in either our ordinary work or our gospel work? You can just pick one to answer um, in whatever industry we're in or season of life. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, a lot of it is a balance of prayer and resting well. Um, I find that I become the laziest when I have overwhelmed myself with my own expectations of what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, And when I can step away and spend time with the Lord and kind of rewrite my, what he calls me to do and the fact that he is the one doing it through me, that, that helps me to, to do my work well and to remember that even the small things. I do a lot of detailed work um, through notes and and preparing for sessions, and that's important too. Um, And so looking to him and his kind of desire for my life to glorify him, that helps me to kind of calm down and do the work that I'm supposed to be doing. Um, I struggle with that in both areas. Um, When I'm at home with my kids, I can sometimes um, think, you know what, I've been working hard the last few days. My, I've got a lot on my mind. You guys just be quiet and play. I just need some time. And I can neglect them and not be intentional with them. And um, I can also do that at work. Again, working from home um, without relationships that are built in, I found that I had to... Um, in order to be able to share the gospel, I'd had a, I needed to have a relationship with coworkers. So um, that meant that I would have to go to all of those charity lunches and benefits, you know, those chamber of commerce lunches that is a long speaker with a rubber chicken lunch. Like, I just had to go to it just so I could get to know the people and have a relationship with them before I could share the gospel. So it's been a lot of... Um, taking time to do that. I mean, I work from home, so I'm usually in my yoga pants and, you know, leggings, but I have to put on real pants with buttons and zippers and heels and go to those things, and you just get a couple minutes before it and a couple minutes after, but it's relationship building, Um, and it's not something I always want to do, but I try to do it and just to build relationships. Well, I have to say that sometimes the right thing to do is to rest. Not to be lazy, but you do need to be rested. And sometimes, you know, when you need a little time to yourself, it's okay. 
something else this is kind of off the subject but uh, that I want to say about uh, small children if you are the mother of small children one time uh, the wife of a pastor that we had we had were shepherding our four little ones out the door and she said this is your mission field right now. These children are your mission field. And they're the ones that, you know, at this stage in life, you need, you know, they're the ones that you need to focus on. So, uh, I mean, that just kept going through my mind. I thought, well, I guess God wants me to say that. <laughs> so, but uh, as I said earlier, do everything is unto the Lord. Um, and you need rest, but you don't need to be lazy. And if you're a mother and are even caring for your own home, there's, you know, things that have to be done. Just uh, focus on the Lord. Remember that these things are his gift to us. We have some responsibility for care for them uh, in life. And uh, don't neglect him also. It's easy to be overwhelmed by the things of this earth. And all this is temporary. It's not going to last. We're purging in our home some to make room for our daughter and her husband who are having to move some furniture into our house temporarily. And it's good. I mean, because it's not going to last anyway. I'm tempted to say that one time my mother had, we have a lot of hand-me-downs in our family. And uh, she said, oh, what would happen if, you know, our house burned down and all this was gone? And I said, it's not going to last anyway. You know, we love it because of who it belonged to and uh, what it meant, you know, how, what the, the people that made it meant to us. But it's not going to last. It's just, this is all temporary. Eyes on God, not on this world. But, you know, as I said, rest, be diligent. <laughs> I sound like a mother. <laughs> and I am. <laughs> That's such excellent advice for all of us. So thank you all. So we're, we can go down, and then Haley's going to close us out.